Hello, I'm Tom Fraser, and this is the Tom Fraser Podcast. Today I'm in New York talking with Elizabeth Barlow Rogers. Betsy is the visionary behind New York's Central Park Conservancy. She is also the author of a new book, Saving Central Park, A History and a Memoir. Betsy's decades-long work to save Central Park is a fascinating story. It is my distinct pleasure to be sitting here today, literally a stone's throw away from Central Park, talking with Elizabeth Barlow Rogers. Uh, Betsy, it's September. Uh, we're coming off a beautiful summer in New York. Uh, Central Park, it just looks beautiful. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in Central Park this summer, and my impression is that park usage is as high as ever. Uh, tell us about where Central Park is today. Well, you're right about saying Central Park has never looked better. And I'm really proud of my successors. People give me a lot of credit. You would think sometimes uh, that when spring comes that I have painted every blossom on every tree and it's wonderful to reap the compliments. However, I have to share them. I have to share them with the staff that I created and the staff since then that has been hired and the management system that has carried forward the original vision. It's not often that as an organization changes that the vision that was there at its foundation goes on. Betsy, as you describe in your book, uh, Central Park hasn't always looked like it does today. Uh, What did it look like when you first got interested in helping Central Park in the 1970s? If you read my book, you will see that the first chapter is called Near Death. And Central Park was really dying. It was terribly unsafe. It was terribly dirty. It was covered with graffiti. Every surface, every rock, every wall, every building, every structure. And it was just eroded. There was no sheep meadow, no grass. There was bare dirt. The trees had not been pruned. Uh, Roots were exposed. Uh, People were told not to go north of 96th Street because it was dangerous. Uh, It was drug-ridden. Dealers were everywhere. And the park really was near death. The park has had many lives, and what I've tried to do in my book is to say that my life is only one part of the lives of Central Park. And what happened was the great vision of Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Fox was a vision for scenic recreation, amazing that they were able to fulfill what was called the Greensward Plan in approximately 15 years. People do not realize that the entire park is man-made, and I'll talk about that later. But the park changes, of course. Time changes. Values change. The scenic recreation gives way to physical recreation, not necessarily a bad thing. However, uh, it was not really uh, sympathetic to the scenic ideal, the scenery, the horticulture, the beauty of the park. It was simply inserted. No one is going to take away the playgrounds or the ball fields, but they were very insensitively uh, put on top of Olmsted and Vox's scenic landscape. Well, 
as long as the park still was managed, and it was managed very autocratically by Robert Moses, also known as the power broker, and he was the commissioner of New York between 1934 and 1961. And who's to say that there wasn't a lot of happiness in the park in those years? However, when you get to the 1960s, that management system is simply collapsed. And Thomas Hoving, briefly the commissioner of parks and the director of the museum, he was all for the happenings, the be-ins, the love-ins. There were protest marches. Uh, and as I said earlier, there was graffiti everywhere. He thought it was wonderful. It was a people's park. He said, smash away. And that was what happened. Could you tell us about some of your, just your very first steps uh, working on Central Park? Yes. The uh, park, for me, is a great work of American landscape art. A lot of people don't realize the genius of the design and how it was created as a work of landscape art, a democratic work for all of the people to enjoy. They're needed more than anything else. You cannot have a vision without having a plan. You can call it a strategic plan. Uh, you can call it a master plan. I call it a management and restoration plan. You cannot restore what you're not prepared to manage. So how do we bring back the scenic vision, how do we incorporate the physical recreation facilities in the park? It's like a jigsaw puzzle. That planning effort is critical. But before we did the plan, just turning people's attention to the plight of the park resulted in 1976 in writing an article for New York Magazine, and I gave a shopping list. We knew we wanted to do the plan. I knew I wanted to have a plan uh, to go forward. But in the meantime, it was so obvious that you could prune a tree or you could um, rebuild a rustic structure, many things. And 33, I think it's called, 33 ways your time and money can save Central Park. It was amazing to me. I hadn't really raised money an extent before. And this was my confirmation that the mission was right and that people loved the park. Within one week, $25,000 came over the transom and I had $25, I had $10, I had $100, I had $10,000 gift. And people loved the park so much that those gifts were accompanied by letters. I knew that I could begin to articulate a vision and that there would be a response. Yeah, people have very strong feelings about the park. I say the three Ps, and those are patience, passion, and persistence. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's not a little nudge. It is having the vision. That's the passion. And having the patience, knowing that it's not 
going to be accepted or realized overnight. And having the persistence, never take no for an answer. Come back and just keep trying. Good advice for anybody taking on a big project. Once you got a little momentum, things really started happening. Can you tell us about a few of the milestones, how things built up to where we are today now? I was able to have this little Central Park Task Force. Sometimes a larger organization is born out of something, say, the Friends of, or some small uh, band of, you know, stalwart people who have uh, this great desire to protect their park, or some other wonderful civic amenity. Uh, And so... The um, plan came out uh, between 1982 and 1985, and that could not have happened. None of this could have happened. A lot is really due to luck and timing. You have to remember that the New York was in the depths of its fiscal crisis when Ed Koch was elected mayor. And Ed Koch appointed for his park commissioner Gordon Davis. Gordon Davis saw what me, little missionary, holding up the candle in the darkness, had uh, to say about Central Park and the citizens of the city. Other people resisted and said, oh, private sector organizations should be in a position to be at arm's length so they can uh, criticize the city. And I didn't want to write op-ed pieces. I really wanted to work inside with city government. And Gordon Davis gave me that opportunity. And we created, it didn't even exist, management for a single park. It was just part of a vast bureaucratic unionized system. And we chose the title Administrator of Central Park with no budget. So there I was, Mrs. Pollyanna, and I knew that I would have to raise serious money, and I was able to start with the Central Park Task Force, and with Gordon's help, we turned that into the Central Park Conservancy. First time the word is used for anything besides the Nature Conservancy. And what makes me so proud is the conservancy is now a dictionary word and it applies to the design parks. So maybe there are 30-some-odd in the country because the idea really caught on. And then people started to come to see me. They came from Atlanta. I saw people from Chicago. I saw um, people from Louisville, which now has a great... Uh, Olmsted system to begin with, and now a whole new um, circumferential part. And so these efforts that they began and that the Central Park Conservancy could serve as an example was very encouraging. But, but, but first we had to raise money. And as I said earlier, the money had to be raised not just fix up this, fix up that. That isn't the way to do it. You have to first look at the whole of it. In this case, 
843 acres of landscape, and you have to look at it historically and in a contemporary way. You have to compare what's happened to that history, and then you have to develop a plan that really articulates and graphically depicts what needs to happen. And then that becomes your catalog of gift opportunities. So if you restore a playground, you're also restoring the entrance and the landscape around it, and eventually the park fits together like a jigsaw puzzle of restoration projects. This is the conclusion of the first segment of my interview with Betsy Rogers about the history and revitalization of New York Central Park. Uh, To learn more, please go to the second segment of my interview. 